I do want to begin today by asking you a question. And before I ask it, I want to make sure that you don't knee-jerk respond. I want you to really and truly think about your answer to the following question. It was a question that I was asked just a couple of weeks ago by a really close friend of mine, lives in a different part of the country. We were on the phone. And he asked me the following question that I'm going to ask you. How are you doing? I mean, seriously, how are you doing? As a matter of fact, right now, with Sunday morning enthusiasm, turn to your neighbor and ask him, how you doing? When my friend asked me this question, this was my response. Because I knew he was asking seriously. It wasn't just kind of a perfunctory drive-by how you doing. It was a sincere, heartfelt. He really was asking how I was doing. And this was my response. I'm good, I think. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I really, I, that, and that was from the heart. I, I was like, I really, I think I'm really good. But in 2020, I'm not 100% sure. Anybody else feel that way from time to time this year? I just, I, I didn't think I'd be alone in that. Like, I, I'm good, I think. I think by any measure you want to use, we are having a year. I mean, this is a year. Whatever you want to say, however the history books remember 2020, I think you could say beyond a shadow of a doubt that 2020, situationally and circumstantially, is marked by chaos. I mean, if you, if you think about it, obviously we've got a global pandemic, we've got economic shutdowns, we've got quarantines. Around the world, school, online, I mean, it's been cray up in here. It's been absolutely insane. But I would suggest to you this morning that it's a craziness and a chaos that is not out of nowhere. What I mean by that is that 2020 has actually, I believe, just kind of crystallized culturally some things that have been simmering and bubbling just beneath the surface. I think for most of us, we've been able to largely, mostly, keep at arm's length, for the most part, most of the time, most of the chaos. But all of a sudden, boom, I mean, it is right here, right now. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And we have to figure out how to handle the chaos. And it's, it's something that is just kind of in every single thing that is going on in our lives, in our world, in our culture, and in every single way. Our culture has been largely chaotic for a while. This is not anything that's new. It's been going on. As a matter of fact, pre-COVID, before corona ever reared its ugly head, one cultural commentator said this about our culture, that we are demoralized, 
decadent, deflating, demographically challenged, divided, disintegrating, dysfunctional, and declining. Have a nice day. But here's the great news. Here's the great news. This is where the church, the bride of Christ, steps up and steps in. If you look at the history of the church, if you look at the history of the church, we have always done our best work with our backs against the wall. We don't do real well as a church, spiritually speaking, from a God perspective when we're in control and in power, but rather when we are the minority, when we are a voice crying out in the wilderness, that's when we do our best work. And make no mistake about it, let me be very clear. As the people of God, our backs are, in fact, against the wall. The reality is we are that voice crying out in the wilderness. We are called, we are commissioned by God himself to be clarity in the chaos. It is our job. It's why we're here. After we confess faith in Christ, after we have responded to his grace initiative, God could have just beamed us home, but he's left us here. We are saved to serve. We are saved to be light in a dark world. We are saved by God's grace to be salt in a world that is literally dying for direction. And so that's the heartbeat of this series that we're kicking off today, Clarity in the Chaos. And over the next few weeks, together, we are going to explore the practical implications and applications of the philosophical and intellectual underpinnings of our faith. One of the great blessings of the Christian faith is that no Christian anywhere ever has to back up intellectually or philosophically from any worldview or argument. Never. As a matter of fact, the Christian faith, the good news of Jesus Christ, stands alone as the most philosophically, intellectually sound worldview that anyone can hold. If you, if you want to stack it up, and so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about this because our worldview, how we see the world, actually defines everything about our lives. I'm going to get into that in just a second, but before I do, I want you to know this series is born primarily out of, out of prayer, but also a deep and abiding passion and concern for younger Christ followers, for folks who maybe are between the ages of 13 and 30. And I know some of you are thinking, 30? 30 is almost dead. Well, when you're 53, 30 is young. And as I look at that generation from 13 to 30, I see a generation as a rule, not entirely and not exclusively, but as a rule that is completely adrift in their worldview. And it's imperative for those of us who are a little bit older, maybe who are their parents or their friends, to help guide them to clarity in the chaos. You see, th this generation needs the help. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, help somebody. 
It's our job. And the statistics are not particularly encouraging. The Pew Center for Research released a report recently that said for students aged 13 to 17, 70%, 7 out of 10, say that anxiety and depression are serious issues for their age group. 70. Between 2007, 10 years, which is like the blink of an eye historically, in that decade between 2000 and 2017, students between 13 and 17 years old saw a 59% increase in major depressive events. Almost 60% increase in 10 years. Gene Twenge is a psychologist and generational scholar who studies these generational issues. And in 2018, she issued a report on the group that she refers to as I-Geners, those who were born after 1995. She says this, they are both physically the safest generation ever and the most mentally fragile. The statistics tell us that what we've been doing isn't working. We've got to do something else. Now, I will tell you this, anecdotally, not statistically, but anecdotally, I see pockets of amazing hope. I see students on a regular basis who are committed to their faith, who are committed to the truth of Scripture, and committed to growing their lives around a God-given worldview and vision. And I see hope over and over and over and over again. But a lot of us need help. And the reality is these stats, these numbers are not just for teens and tweens. All of us, I think, experience more anxiety, more angst, more clinical depression today than any generation that has ever gone before us. And it comes back to our world view. It comes back to how we look at the world. And so as we dive into this series, there are two passages of Scripture that are going to guide us through this conversation over the next few weeks. And I want to encourage you. I want to actually, I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to beg you. How about that? To make Sunday morning a priority. If you can at all, be in the room. And if not, online is a great supplement but I want to challenge you to be a part of this conversation. It is so critical, not just for our world, not just for our culture, but for our lives. The first passage of Scripture that's going to be our guide through this, we referenced in our last series on grace. It's found in Ephesians chapter number 4. And in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul, under the authority of the Holy Spirit of God, is explaining to the church in Ephesus how the church functions. And he lays out some of, the, some of the offices, some of the roles that God gives to the church for the edifying, the building up, the encouraging, the teaching of the church so that the church, the body of Christ, grows in faith. And he says there are apostles, there are pastors, there are teachers, there are evangelists, all these different offices who God has given to the church. Our job is to equip and to encourage the church to be the church. But this is how he describes the result of this equipping and encouraging. And the words are going to be highlighted 
in this passage that are on the screen. I want you to read these words that are highlighted out loud with me when I get to them. Verse 14, we'll start in Ephesians 4. It says, now then, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. We will speak the truth in love. And as we talked about in our, in our series on grace, most of us gravitate towards either truth or love. A lot of that's just kind of personality driven. And, and there, that drift is not necessarily wrong or right. It's just kind of how we're wired up. Some of us are truth tellers. We're going to tell the truth because we love people. Sometimes you want to go, maybe you could just love me a little less. Others are, are, are the grace givers. And they're, they're just going to give grace. And yeah, that. He shouldn't have worn those jeans, but I'm not going to tell him because I'm going to give him grace. And the reality is that, that both truth and grace are needed. Truth and love. We will tell the truth in love. And as followers of Christ, we have to be willing to speak the truth in love, but we have to know the truth. You see, we have to teach our kids, we have to learn ourselves that God's truth is given as a gift, even though it may not necessarily feel like it all the time. Have you ever read the Bible looking for loopholes? How many, has anybody ever read the Bible looking for a loophole? I did. I'll tell you exactly where I was. I was engaged. I was engaged to be married to Julie, and I knew what God said biblically about sex, that, that sex is for one man, one woman, one life in marriage. I, I knew that. But I'll be honest with you. When I proposed to Julie, I thought, man, I've already made the commitment. I bought a ring. Surely there's a loophole if you're engaged. Surely we can kind of, you know, start practicing. I want to be a good husband. It's hard. I was a Bible scholar <laughs> looking for that loophole, baby. Didn't find it. Didn't find it. By the grace of God, Julie and I were able to wait until we were married. I, so many times I would have to say, Julie, not yet. <laughs> I've looked for the loophole. It's not there. If you run into my wife later, don't tell her I said that. <laughs> she knows I say that. But we will speak the truth in love. Second passage of Scripture that's going to guide our conversation. If you're, if you're trying to develop a worldview, if you're starting maybe to think about it intentionally and deliberately and not just haphazardly, just go back to the beginning. Go, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, 1. Look at what the Bible says. Again, I want you to read the highlighted words with me. We're going to go through verse 4. 
The Bible says, in the beginning, God, just stop. Just stop right there. In the beginning, God, before you and I ever showed up, this is where the Christian worldview begins. God started it all. He was already here. That's part of what being eternal means. God has no beginning. Now, I can kind of get my head around eternally that way, forever, no end. That, that's kind of out there, but I can get there. No beginning, <clears throat> fries the circuit. I, I don't understand that, but it's true. In the beginning, God, he was already here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. So the First thing that God does, the first thing is he brings light into the darkness. As a matter of fact, that passage in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew of Genesis chapter 1 is a creation poem. I love it when people go, I don't believe the Bible because six days of creation. <laughs> that is so cute. All they're saying is I don't understand the Bible because it's a creation poem poem. This is not intended to be a science textbook. Did it happen in six literal days? Maybe. Was it six eras or, or ages that God created? Maybe. We don't know. The word for day is the Hebrew word yom. Say yom. Yom, yom just means it could be a 24-hour day or it could mean like we say, you know, back in the day. Back in the day when Julie and I were dating. That was back in the day. That, that's, that's an era bygone <laughs> but when it says the earth was formless and empty that's a critical phrase the earth was formless and empty the, the Hebrew words there are tohu and vohu and, and it's kind of it, it, it depends on what scholar you read vohu is kind of a combination of a B and a V at the beginning vohu Hebrew is a fun word this fun language to say it's Horrible to read, fun to speak. Say tohu. Kind of have to hork up a little phlegm there. Formless. Tohu. To say it is formless, the Hebrew word actually conveys the concept of chaos. That there was no order to anything. Tohu. It was, it was chaotic. And it was emptiness and nothingness. Tohu. Tohu is nothingness. This, this chaos and nothingness, and it was God who spoke into the chaos and the nothingness, order and light, and ultimately life, and he's been doing it ever since. God bringing clarity to the chaos. God speaking truth into nothingness. God speaking everything into existence. This is where the worldview begins. Now, I want to just set up where we're going to be over the next few weeks, if I can. And if you don't mind, bear with me a little bit. I'm, I'm going to go over here to the blackboard so you know 
Okay, whiteboard, so that you know I'm serious. Here's how a worldview happens. And I'm going to go through this very quickly, but we're going to come back to this, okay? We all have thoughts, feelings, all the feels, and ideas. You've got them, I've got them, all God's children got them, and they come from all over the place. Anybody had any crazy thoughts lately? Just, sometimes you go, how did that happen in my brain? That's scary. We, we've all been there. Thoughts, feelings, and ideas. They come from everywhere. So they're not necessarily good, bad, or evil. They're just kind of there. But what determines good, bad, or evil, constructive or destructive, is what we do with them. So a biblical worldview takes these thoughts, feelings, and ideas and filters them through the filter of truth. Truth. Truth then becomes the thing that we look at our thoughts with. We go, hmm, I wonder if that's true. For example, I could be like, I don't know if Julie still loves me anymore. I don't, I don't know. What, what? And then I go, okay, what's the truth? The truth is 29 years, two biological children, two bonus children, being a part of starting a church, she's probably not going anywhere. The truth is she loves me. So because of that truth, I can eject that untrue thought or feeling or idea that comes into my mind or my heart. Truth, those feelings, thoughts, and ideas that make it through the filter of truth, and I'm going to come back to that in a second because it really matters. Those things that make it through the filter, those things become my beliefs, your beliefs. Those are the thoughts, feelings, or ideas that we recognize, we have filtered through the truth, and we go, these are the things that we will anchor our lives in, our beliefs. Now, you've got beliefs. You may be an atheist. You may be an agnostic, you, but you have beliefs. Don't let anybody ever tell you that they are just strictly a person of science. I, I'm a man of reason. That's cool. That's great. But you've got faith. I mean, you, you, you have some things that you believe. And these beliefs then drive our decisions. This is how we make decisions. Now, a lot of times, let's be, can we just be honest with each other? This is church, okay? A lot of times, we go to our feelings to make our decisions, don't we? It just feels right. I'm just going to trust my gut. That's, that's, that's fine, but, but admit it if that's what you're doing. So many times we're like, well, you know, I, I examined, I did a cost-benefit analysis. I examined all of the evidence, pro and con, and made a rational decision. No, you didn't. You went with your gut. You just called it something different. But our beliefs are the things that drive our decisions. Our decisions, the choices that we make in this life, these are the things that become our life. Your life, my life, is the sum total of the decisions that we make, the choices, the actions that we take. This is the life cycle of thoughts, feelings, and ideas. This is where it all happens. But I want to go back to this idea of truth. 
Because culturally, you and I live in a world that is based and anchored on a fundamental philosophical flaw. You and I live in a world that believes and acts as though it believes that there is no absolute truth, that there is nothing that is always true. We live in a world that says, man, you live your truth, I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to, what's true for you is cool. That's, that's great that that's your truth, but that's not true for me. Here's why that is fundamentally flawed philosophically. To say that there is no absolute truth is a statement of absolute truth. You see what happens? It doesn't even stand up under the weight of its own claim. Philosophically, relativism falls apart. It implodes on itself. You see, the reality is there is absolute truth. And God determines what is true. It is God's call about what is true, what is real. It's, it's because of the way God structured this world that two plus two equals four. Now, you, you may be at heart a relativist. You might be one of those people who's like, man, I, I don't believe in any kind of absolute truth. That's cool until you have children or you have to pay the bills. At that point, everybody's an absolutist. At that point, every parent worth their salt at some point has looked at their child and said, because I said so. How many of you remember the, I mean, you know what that's like when you're like, I can't believe that just came out of my mouth, but I got a hold of space. You're an absolutist when it comes to paying bills. You get your bill from American Express that you pay off every month. You, you can't call Amex and go, hey, I know that you, your truth is that I owe $434.82. My truth is that it's $100 total. And so that's what I'm going to send you. They're like, that's cool, but we're going to charge you 19% interest on that other $334. Two plus two equals four. If it doesn't, you're not dealing with reality. Truth is the bedrock of your worldview. What you believe about truth, how you live out what you believe. Here's what the Bible says about the truth of God. In Psalm chapter 119, the Bible says, Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I hate every false way of life. That's okay. We don't use the word hate. Sure we do. We hate sin. We hate brokenness. We hate estrangement, isolation. We love truth. We love people, and people we love, we tell the truth. You're not doing anyone a favor to hold back the truth. If you really love someone, you tell them the truth in 
love. In John chapter 13, Jesus has gathered with his disciples, his closest followers. This is that sacred upper room experience, the first communion meal that was ever served. They're celebrating the Passover meal. Remember, the Passover dated all the way back to Moses, 1,400 years before that night. The Passover when every Jewish family in Egyptian slavery took the blood of a lamb and smeared it on their doorframe so that the angel of God knew to bypass that house for death, for judgment. And that night, 1,400 years before this night, was a type. It was pointing Israel toward this night. And in John chapter 13, Jesus is washing feet. He's washing the feet of his disciples. And after he washes their feet, he's, he's getting them ready for what's to come. And he, he's preparing them. He's equipping them. And, and he says, my time has come. I, I'm about to be betrayed, actually by one of you in this room. And Judas leaves. He says, and after I'm betrayed, then I'm going to be turned over to a kangaroo court and tried for crimes that I've never committed. And I'm going to be sentenced to death, and I'm going to die on a Roman cross. And Peter, God bless him, Peter's like, Lord, no, may it never be. And he says, Peter, as a matter of fact, before the sun comes up tomorrow morning, you're going to deny that you even know me three different times. And then they have communion. And Jesus said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. This cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. And then at the beginning of John chapter 14, he says, listen, he goes, I, I've told you these things so that you would be ready. But then he says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. I don't know where you are this morning. My guess is in the room online, some of us know about a troubled heart. But Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled because in my Father's house, in, in the heavens above, there are many, many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you. You're one of mine. And he says this. He goes, he goes if it wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you that. He goes, I'm going back to the Father, and you know the way to the Father. And then Thomas, doubting Thomas, remember the one who after the resurrection said, I don't believe that he's alive until I put my hand in his wounds. That Thomas. Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, we don't know the way that you are going. 
And Jesus said, yeah, you do. John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, you see, the truth is a person. The truth is the Son of the living God who died on a cross for you and for me and rose from the dead. That is the truth. He is the anchor for our lives and our worldview. I want to ask you, if you will, just bow your heads for a moment. Man, we've covered a lot of ground today. But man, here, here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Have you trusted the truth? Have you trusted Jesus more than you trust yourself? Have you chosen to respond to his grace initiative to make him the centerpiece of your worldview? to make him the Lord of your life. We'd love to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Here in this room, watching online, whatever it may be, wherever you may be, I wanna invite you, if that's your prayer, if that's something you've never done but you would like to do it now, pray silently, just talk to God, something like this, just say, Jesus, I need you. In this moment, I'm choosing to trust you more than myself. I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back. In order to receive your grace, your forgiveness, and I will follow you from this moment forward. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. For just a sacred moment more, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed. If that was your prayer, maybe online, maybe here in the room, I want you to know that as a church, we want to help with what's next. And as a church, we honor that and celebrate that moment in your life. That's the biggest moment of your life. And so I want to ask you, if you would, if that was your prayer today and you meant it, would you just lift your hand quietly? Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment as an expression physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And know that as a family of faith with you, we honor that and celebrate it. As you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.